0: Good morning, Faith Church. I want to open this time with a really simple question that will hopefully get us thinking about where the text ought to lead us this morning. And that question is, what is the greatest blessing in your life? What is the greatest blessing in your life? To ask it another way, maybe what is the most valuable part of your life? I'm not sure what the answer to that question is for you, but a few common answers to those questions would be, well, it's my wife, or it's my husband, it's my kids, it's my boyfriend or girlfriend, it's my job, my house, my car, my friends. And maybe if some were honest, they'd say, well, actually, it's my cell phone or my TV. But what is the greatest blessing or most valuable part of your life. Today, my prayer is that we would see clearly in the text that God's glory should be preeminent over all of our relationships and all of our circumstances. That our love for Jesus would far exceed our love for our relationships and our circumstances. My name is Ryan Sickinger, and it is my privilege to be able to serve as the family pastor here at Faith Church. And this morning is my privilege to be able to open God's word to you all. This morning we will be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible um, with you, I encourage you to grab one from the lobby and have a copy of God's word in front of you. We are covering a large portion of scripture today, so it will be helpful to have that open. If you don't own a Bible, please keep one of those. That is our gift to you. The title of the message this morning is Our Body in God's Glory Part 2. Last week, Pastor Mike preached the second half of chapter 6 and titled it, Our Body and God's Glory. And as I sinned in the sermon last Sunday, I was like, that's a good title. That fits with where we're going next week. I'm going to steal that. So, you know, my greatest compliments, right, is to steal things from people. So. I I took it, but it fits with where we're at this week. And I hope that as we move through the text this morning, you will see the continuity between last week's sermon and this week's sermon. If you didn't listen last week, I'd encourage you to go online later today and listen to that. One of the biggest aspects of continuity in these passages is the addressing of our bodies And our sexuality. So for parents that are present, there's no way I could teach this text faithfully this morning without talking about sex. So fair warning on the front end, we will discuss that. My prayer is, however, that this will lead to some really good and healthy conversation between you and your kids later this afternoon. I'm regularly asked by students in the student ministry to do messages on dating or relationships. So if that has been any of you, listen up because the Word of God has a lot of good instruction for you this morning. In fact, this is potentially the most helpful chapter in all of Scripture for dealing with those who are presently single and have questions about relationships and romance from a biblical perspective. So listen up. God's word has a lot to say to you. Another aspect of this text I want to address on the front end is to highlight the use of the phrase now concerning in this chapter. The issues Paul has been addressing up until this point in the book are come from a report from Chloe's people that is um, referenced in chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11. And here, in chapter 7, we see Paul transition towards addressing a letter that was sent to the Corinthian church. So throughout the rest of the book, note or highlight or circle whenever you see the phrase now concerning as those mark definitive shifts in topic through the remainder of the book of 1 Corinthians. Finally, I want to point out that we have a lot of real estate to cover this morning. This chapter is 40 verses, and thus this sermon may at times feel a little bit dense. Out of necessity, necessity, there will be parts that get less explanation and illustration. But in most of this passage, I really believe that God's word speaks for itself. A lot of the text isn't confusing to understand It can just be hard to live out in practice. So strap on your seatbelts, take a sip of coffee. we got a lot of work to do. And let's begin that by going to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today humbled by your amazing grace and mercy for us. We pray that as we sit under your word this morning, you would continue the work Of conforming us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts and make us receptive to what you would have to teach us this morning. That if there is any stubbornness or selfishness preventing us from receiving your word, you would soften us and remove the stones from our hearts As is our custom, Lord, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, we want to lift up to you Desert Springs Church and Pastor Ryan Kelly. Lord, we thank you for all the ways you're using that church to encourage and equip our region, such as the Claris Conference this weekend. And I pray that as that congregation gathers this morning, they will be richly fed and encouraged by your word. And Jesus, for us here this morning, I pray that you'd give us a greater vision for our lives than our mere lust and desires. That we would see the totality of our bodies and our sexuality and our circumstances as being subservient to your will and ultimately for your glory. That the whole of our lives would be about delighting in you and seeking to bring you glory is in the only name that can save, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. As we work through this large chapter this morning, I hope we all see a couple of things very clearly. I pray that we will see that God, what God has to say about glorifying himself in marriage, in our present circumstances, and finally, in singleness. Now, I want to be clear that the primary emphasis of this passage is not Marriage is not our present circumstances, and is not singleness. The main emphasis of this passage about seeking the glory of God above all else, in all things, is about seeking his exaltation and majesty and splendor and allowing this pursuit to transcend every earthly relationship or circumstance. If you divorce these topics from the overarching theme of glorifying God, you will miss entirely God's intent for us in this passage. What is the main emphasis? It is bringing God glory. How do we do that in our relationships and in our circumstances? That is the question that Paul will answer in the text. To begin, let us consider how we ought to glorify God in marriage. First, considering what a healthy sex life should be within the marriage covenant. Maybe that's an awkward place to start, but that's what's in front of me. So here we go. Healthy sex life in verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here in verse 1, Paul is addressing a misconception the Corinthian church had written him about regarding sex. Namely, in the quotation marks, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's not advocating the statement, but rather quoting it in order to address it. Similar to in the previous chapter where he quotes, all things are lawful for me. With that said, he then in verse 2 rebuts this wrong thinking and says that because of the temptation towards sexual sin, it is good for a man to have a wife, as opposed to their misconception of it being best that everyone remain celibate. Now, I think it's important to clarify in this verse the use of the word have here in the second verse is a euphemism for engaging in sexual intercourse. So rather than saying every person should have a spouse, which he will make a case against here shortly, he is saying that if a man has these desires, he should go ahead and get married rather than sin. Which moving into verses 3 and 4, Paul declares that within this marriage covenant, the husband and wife ought to engage in this sexual activity and they ought to do so regularly and freely. And the primary way he makes this case is by reminding them that they and we do not own our own bodies. Our bodies first belong to the Lord. This point was made in the previous chapter in verses 19 and 20. And then if we are married, our bodies secondly belong to our spouses. This is a radical and inflammatory statement in our age of hyper-individualism and autonomy. To claim that our bodies belong to our spouse, to some in here, may sound like medieval or oppressive. Once we grasp the context of the words spoken here, I think this is incredibly beautiful and actually quite romantic. To start, let me make something abundantly clear about how we ought to apply this passage. For the married couples in here, we apply this passage by selflessly giving of ourselves to our spouses. The key word is selflessly. If you use this like a club to coerce or pressure your spouse, you are gravely perverting the intent of this passage. Husband, if you go to your wife and demand she give you what you want because her body belongs to you, then you're not only committing really bad hermeneutics and exegesis, but you probably are not going to get the result that you're looking for, okay? It probably will not go well for you. To take it to another level, I think all of us can probably imagine how these verses could be twisted in an abusive way that we would absolutely condemn and are certainly not God's intent. What the text is calling us towards here is to selflessly give ourselves for the sake of our spouses, not to demand things from our spouses. So the simple rule here is are we being selfless or selfish? If you're being selfless in applying this text, then you're following God's intent. If you're being selfish in applying this text, you're in sin. And you need to repent to God and to your spouse. So let me ask the married couples in this room, are you giving yourself to your husband or your wife in this way? Are you holding too tightly to your autonomy and selfish desires? Are you seeking to give yourself fully to your spouse? Without being crass here, I hope you guys have fun in applying this biblical passage if you're married. This is a good word for married couples. We are to do this. Then in verse 5, we see Paul give a concession to abstain from intercourse in marriage in what appears to be a form of fasting for a short time. Maybe some of you would choose this form of fasting this week as we engage in a church wide fast is worth considering here that the only reason Paul gives us married couples for not having a consistent sex life is to pursue God together for a short time. As we think about our marriages and our sexuality within marriage, we must reserve the highest place of glory and honor for God. This form of fasting is a way in which we can acknowledge that within our marriage. Continuing in this passage, Paul now makes a concession for singles in verses 6 through 9. So let's go ahead and read what the Word of God has to say for us, starting in verse 6. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say this: is good for them to remain single as I am. But, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A few points on this section are that in verses 6-8, through eight, even while addressing marriage, he holds up the value and, dare I say, superiority of singleness. Here in verse 9, however, we see Paul acknowledge that singleness is not for everyone and encourages holiness and purity by pursuing marriage if one's passions are strong. Now, I'd love to just launch into those concepts right now, but Paul will circle back to them at the end of the chapter, so be patient. Paul will have a lot more to say in regards to singleness, getting married, and our passions. So just hold on We will get there. So with that being said, let's push forward into verses 10 through 16 and see how we ought to glorify God in marriage in light of divorce and remarriage. Read with me starting in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, we, before we jump into the specifics of these verses, I want to address something that often trips people up with these verses, which is that in verse 10, Paul says, Not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. You may be reading this and thinking, wait. If it's just Paul's opinion, is it not inspired? I thought the whole Bible was inspired by God. Those are good questions. And I think it's important to ask those types of questions as you're reading scripture. Now, although there's some debate about why he uses the phrasing here, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. In verses 10 and 11, he's paraphrasing words from Jesus' earthly teaching ministry, which can be found in the gospel accounts. In verses 12 through 16, he is giving additional instruction that is no less authoritative. He is simply clarifying that this is new instruction. Church, you must understand that we are not red-letter Christians and that we view the passages where Jesus is speaking during his earthly ministry as more instructive than the rest of the Bible. All of Scripture is inspired by God, and it all holds the same weight and authority for us. They are all God's words. In analyzing this section, let us reflect on where he quotes from the teachings of Jesus in verses 10 and 11. In these verses, Paul quotes Jesus' stance on marriage that holds out the standard that we should not divorce our spouses. As well, he instructs that if we have been divorced, we should remain single and pray that we would be reconciled to our ex-spouse. So the instruction from Jesus is really twofold. One, that we should not get divorced. And two, if we do, we should remain single and pray for reconciliation. Paul then adds on to this by explaining how a believer ought to respond if they are married to an unbeliever. Which the implied assumption here is that they got saved after they were already married. Not that as a believer they chose to marry an unbeliever. Paul says that in these cases, you should seek to maintain the marriage. But if the unbelieving spouse chooses to separate from you, then you have not sinned. Or to use the words from the text, you are not enslaved or bound to that person. Notice the gospel hope that is intertwined in this specific instruction. The prayer is that through your marriage relationship, God would bring to saving faith the unbelieving spouse. Now, I don't believe this text teaches that the unbelieving spouse or the children of believers will definitely be saved. Otherwise, the instruction on divorce here would not really make any sense if the salvation was a guarantee. Rather, Paul is simply acknowledging that your proximity and relationship to your unbelieving spouse can be an incredibly powerful witness. One that we've seen play out in this very church in some of your testimonies. And praise God for that. And thinking about these passages on divorce and remarriage, I want to state that this is not all that the Bible teaches on the topic of divorce. And we must hold up all of the various scriptural texts on this topic to get a full picture of it. But what this passage does hold up is God's high standard of marriage and how we should seek with all our might to uphold the union between us and our spouse. That even if we divorce for legitimate biblical reasons, the choice to remain single and hope for reconciliation reveals a heart that is devoted to God and his glory and it desires to uphold their end of the covenant at whatever personal cost. Friends, when it comes to marriage and divorce and sexuality, we live in a culture and society that is like a raging sea. The world around us is trying to toss and throw us in every which way. The wind is blowing fierce, and the devil would love nothing more than to sink us in this regard. But if we love God and we seek to glorify him, we should hold fast to his sure and true word. God has not left us to guesswork when it comes to sexuality and marriage. He made his standard clear. And we must seek to glorify our God in our marriages by holding fast to his true words for us. Although we could probably spend weeks in the previous section of verses, we have got to continue to move forward in this text. In verses 17 through 24, we see that we are called to glorify God in our present circumstances. Now, at first, this section may seem kind of out of place if you're just looking at the chapter as a whole. In verses 1 through 16, Paul addresses marriage and divorce. And then in verses 25 through 40, Paul addresses singles. So why does he sandwich those relational passages with these verses? I think as we read them, you will see that this is actually the overarching truth of the entire passage. That whether you are a Jew or Greek, slave or free, married or single, you are called to glorify God in that state. That is the overarching assignment as Christians, to be people who bring glory to Jesus Christ. With that said, let us read verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches, that includes faith church. Was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a bondservant is a freedman. Of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bond servant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. As we seek to glorify God in our present circumstances, we must first embrace God's assignment for us. Let us read the first part of verse 17 again where he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Does this say that we are called to lead the life that we really want to be true? Does it say that we are to declare the assignment we would like from God and he will definitely give that to us? No. It says we are to lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He then goes on to flesh this out in the following verses to contrast the circumcised and the uncircumcised, making a distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers. And simply saying to follow Christ as what he has called you to be. To the Gentiles, particularly here, he is saying, you don't have to make yourself a Jew. Simply obey and follow God by, in verse 19, keeping the commandments of God. For it's not merely an outward sign that Jesus desires. He desires our hearts that are eager to obey his statutes. Then in verses 20 through 24, Paul emphasizes and rephrases that we are continue our Christian walks as we were called. Read with me again in verse 20 where it says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Let us walk through these remaining verses by think and lean into this bond servant or slave imagery that he uses here. It's quite powerful. In verse 21 were you a bondservant or slave when called do not be concerned about it but if you can gain your freedom avail yourself the opportunity here paul simply says if you are a slave do not worry about it go about your business as a slave if you are if you can free yourself by all means take it but don't worry about it now, it's worth noting that the concept of being a bondservant or a slave here is much different than the American slavery we had in the South and what we are used to and what we think of when we think of slavery. But still, even in their culture, it was certainly not a positive or a delightful thing for someone to be a slave or a bondservant. No one desired this. And here Paul is essentially saying don't worry about it, it's no big deal. He goes on to explain in verse 22, he says, For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Amen. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Do you see the contrast? He is saying, you may be under bondage to an earthly master, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a freed man. He then likewise reminds those whom are free here on earth that they are bondservants or slaves to Christ. Whether you are a slave or free, all that really matters is where do you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Faith Church, whether you are rich or poor, my question to you is where do you stand with Jesus. In the end, our nation of origin or our residence doesn't really matter. What matters is, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Have you been saved? Everyone in here, I encourage you to put your eyes on a copy of God's word as we read verses 23 and 24. Have your ears perk up a little bit because it's about to get really important. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You were bought with the price. Brothers and sisters, this is absolutely the best news you're going to hear today and probably ever. If you are in Christ, you were bought with the price. Every single one of us, because of our sin and rebellion against God, deserves nothing but his wrath and judgment. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we talk about glorifying God this morning, know that in and of ourselves we have all failed to glorify God. And this failure and the breaking of God's law will result in eternal conscience torment under his wrath in hell if it is not dealt with. But in God's sovereign grace and mercy, God himself, the creator of the universe, in the person of Jesus Christ, condescended from heaven to earth and was born as a baby. He lived the perfect life that we could not, glorifying God in every aspect of his life. And rather than exalting himself on an earthly throne here and destroying us, his enemies... Instead, he bore the punishment and wrath that you and I deserve by dying a cruel criminal's death on a cross. But three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death. And it is through that finished work of Jesus that he offers to us the forgiveness of our sins and imparts to us his own perfect righteousness. If we repent of our sins and place our faith in him. I want to be clear to everyone in here this morning that if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received the incredible gift of atonement, your salvation was not free. It did not come without cost. It cost the eternal God of the universe, our maker and creator, his own life. You were bought with a cost. So whatever condition of life you find yourself in, slave or free, rich or poor, Jew or Greek, widowed or married or divorced or single, you belong to Christ. And it is out of that position or calling that you ought to live the entirety of your life. God's glory should be preeminent or supreme over all of our relationships and circumstances. Do you see this morning that God's glory ought to be the preeminent purpose of your life? Is that true of you? We are called to glorify God in our present circumstances. Well, brothers and sisters, we are not quite done yet. We have one more section to work through in this passage where Paul now turns his instruction towards those who are single. So for all of you who are presently single, I encourage you to listen what God's word has to say for you in these verses. And for those who are married, don't tune out. You as well need to listen really carefully to what God has to say in this passage. We married people often give really unbiblical An unhelpful advice and pressure upon our single brothers and sisters, and we must make sure that our counsel is honoring to the Lord and how we speak into the lives of our single siblings in the faith. As well, unless Jesus returns or you and your spouse pass at the same time, many who are presently married will become single again at some point. So please hear these important words to us as we seek to understand what it looks like to glorify God in singleness. Let us begin by reading verses 25 through 27. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, and here when he he uses this word betrothed, in the Greek it simply means virgins. So often we think of that word, we think of someone that's engaged. And it's actually, it's a more broad term than that than he's using for those that are unmarried. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Listen to what he says. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. Here in these verses, Paul encourages single believers to remain single as he is. And he roots this based on what he calls the present distress in verse 26, which he is going to expand upon in the following verses. But before we jump into that, I just want to ask those who are married in the room, is this the advice that you're giving to your single friends? What I've seen is the exact opposite of this in the church. I've seen married couples pressure singles in the church to get married, and even worse, treat them like there's something wrong with them for remaining single. On behalf of the singles in the room, I just want to rebuke that as ungodly and often cruel pressure on those who are not presently married. As well, I just want to make abundantly clear that if you are single and in Christ, you lack nothing. You have all you need and far more in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about some like strange, like Jesus is my boyfriend nonsense, okay? I'm talking about the fact that you are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm talking about the fact that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1 verse 3. And the blessings bestowed by Christ are infinitely greater than the blessings of marriage. You are complete in Christ. But why is it exactly that Paul encourages singleness? Some of you might be asking. Isn't marriage a good thing? Let us continue to read what he has to say, starting in verse 28 through 35. He says, But if you do marry you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. If you're wondering what he means, he tells us what he means. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties, I say this is for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In this section, we see Paul essentially make two points that both point to the blessing of a soul devotion to Christ. The first is that time is short. To say it another way, there is work to be done. And from the perspective of glorifying God in singleness, one of the greatest blessings of singleness ought to be how you are freed up to serve the Lord. Godly singleness is not about having more time to travel or binge watch Netflix or to stay up till 2 in the morning playing video games and eating Cheetos, okay? Godly singleness leverages the extra time you have to serve God and help extend and forward the gospel. It is a life devoted to mission and to service of Christ. The time is short and you have a job to do. The second aspect of his argument for singleness is that your interest will not be divided. Now I can tell you, as a husband and as a pastor, my interests are divided. I could easily immerse all of my waking moments to the ministry of the church, but if I did so, it would be at the total detriment of my marriage and my children. Singles, this is not true of you. You can devote so much more time, as well as mental and emotional and spiritual energy, for the sake of glorifying God and enjoying Him. In a unique and beautiful way, single Christians can glorify God with a soul devotion. And if you are single, you should absolutely be doing that. I want to ask everyone in here who is not presently married, are you wasting your singleness? Are you wasting your singleness? Or are you utilizing it as a great gift from God that frees you to serve him and worship him and adore him? more fully. Moving on into verses 36 through 38, we see that while holding in high esteem the gift of singleness, he is in no way laying any burden on them that they must remain single. Read with me verses 36 through 38. He says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, his passions are strong and if it has to be, Let him do as he wishes. And notice it answers that question, okay? It doesn't say let him do as he wishes, whatever he wants. He tells us what he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his own heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. But listen to this. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. To start here, there are a few truths that I think we would do well to glean from verse 36. Paul's advice is essentially, if you cannot control your urges, if your loins are burning, then you should go ahead and get married, okay? It is better for you to get married than to sin and burn with passion. For the teenagers present, this is one of the primary reasons why I'd recommend you not date until you're at an age where you can marry, or at least that is in the near future. Because if you're not at marrying age, for you, Paul's exhortation here is totally helpless to you while dating. If the gears of romance start to turn... You either have two choices. You can burn with passion or fall into sexual sin. Those are not two good choices. Whereas when you get older, if those passions intensify, you can simply get married. I strongly exhort you, don't mess with romance until you are ready for marriage. I know this is not common in our society. I know this is not what the predominant path that people are following But following God has always been the narrow path. But I can assure you that there's way more joy in seeking to glorify God in these ways than to just simply glorify whatever passions you have at the moment. As well, I would just like to point out that Paul holds up singleness as actually being superior in God's ordering of maturity for the Christian in verse 38. In the church, I see people often act otherwise, and I think it's a great disservice and harm to those whom God has called to pursue him in singleness. Let's remember the author of this, the Apostle Paul, and let's remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that were single their entire life. It's pretty wrong ordering if you put them below. Finally, let us look at the final two verses that address some specifics of the marriage covenant and some final advice on this topic Read with me in verse 39, it says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. When we engage in the covenant of marriage, the classic vow is, help me finish this, till death do us. Right. And so what he's pointing out here is reminding widows that they're free in Christ to remarry if they so please. They have completed their covenant vows to one another. So if you are a widower in here and desire remarriage, you are certainly free in Christ to pursue that. There's only one caveat that Paul gives in this, and that is only to marry in the Lord. I firmly believe this word is true, not only for widows, but for all single Christians. That if you marry, you ought to marry in the Lord. What does that mean? Simply put, if you seek to glorify God first in your life and subsequently desire to glorify God in your marriage, you should marry someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and has surrendered their life to him. This is controversial to some, but I think the baseline truth behind it is actually pretty simple. Why would you want to marry someone or become one with a person that does not share the most fundamental aspect of your life and identity? It should not shock us That disagreements on religion are one of the primary causes of divorce. We are to marry those that are in the Lord. So for those of you who are in here that are single, that desire to marry, I simply want to ask you, of what gain is it to waste time dating people who are unbelievers? Why would you not want to share your faith with the person you will be closest with? I want to ask honestly, if you're in a dating relationship with an unbeliever, are you seeking to glorify yourself and your desires and your passions? Are you seeking to glorify God? We have covered some weighty things in our time this morning. I want to leave a final word of encouragement as we wind down our time together in the word. In this text we have studied, God has held up a very high standard I don't know if you've seen that. God has a high standard for marriage. He has a high standard for sex. He has a high standard for singleness. And if at any or multiple points this morning you were hit with the feeling of guilt or failing to meet God's high standard, I just want to say welcome to the club. Let me be clear that God absolutely cares about perfect obedience to his standard. And that is why he fulfilled it perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed perfectly on your behalf. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have received the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness. When God sees you, he doesn't see your past failures. He sees the present perfections of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're in here this morning and maybe this message was hard because you're presently sinning in one of these ways, you're presently not upholding God's good standard, then I implore and plead with you to repent of your sin this morning, to turn from your sinful ways and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he will be faithful and just to forgive you. There's no better time to repent and trust in Jesus than right now. Tomorrow is not promised. Please get right with the Lord today. We've certainly covered a lot of ground this morning, but I hope that you see the main emphasis and all of the rest of the real estate we covered as just being examples of that main idea in practice. The main idea is God's glory should be preeminent Over our relationships and our circumstances. Our desire to glorify God should dictate how we should engage our marriages. Our desire to glorify God should dictate how we engage our present circumstances. And our desire to glorify God should dictate how we think about and how we engage in singleness. Should all be rooted and under the umbrella of our love for God and our desire to glorify God him. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men, so brothers in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your good words to us in this passage. And I'm just keenly aware of how challenging they are to actually live out Your standard is high, God. You are holy, as we sang before this sermon. But God, you are good. And where we failed, if we place our faith in you, you're faithful and just to forgive us. So I pray for those of us in here that have failed in these regards, that you would give us a great confidence in your work on the cross and your redemption of us. God, I pray for those that are in here as well, that are presently still engaging and toiling through this sin. I pray that you'd give them the courage to repent this morning. You'd give them the courage to see a greater vision for their life than their own fleshly desires. That they would see the totality of their lives as being for your glory and your exaltation That we would marvel at you and seek to live that out in every aspect of life. Namely, our marriages or our singleness. God, would you help us to follow you? Would you give us grace as we follow you? Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.